Well, you guys made it to a new year. Starting back up. It seems so dark and cold out in the morning, man. That's tough to get up. But thank you for doing that. Appreciate it. And uh, before we uh, get started, I want to just run through a couple of announcement things and uh, let you know of an opportunity to serve. I mentioned it in an email back, I think, in December to you. But George Siegel is our deacon who uh, oversees, like, setup and teardown. And that was a lot more when it was uh, at Valley. We were renting from Valley. And now that we have our own place, it's not as much of, a, of an issue. Um, his team is basically uh, dissipated. He doesn't need it anymore. However, he is still pretty much the only guy that on, um, will get things ready outside um, for Sunday mornings, like making sure our banner gets up, which, Lord willing, won't be a whole lot longer. Hopefully we'll be able to get a new sign here uh, that will be actually on the building. Um, so... But for now, we have to hang up our banner, and we can't do that all week. We can't just let it be there because that violates the, you know, CCNRs here or whatever. Um, but so he likes to get that banner up. Um, basically, what we're talking about on the outside or at the front entryway is just making things Sunday morning ready. Um, that means uh, getting that sign up. Uh, we've got a, a blower that we use. We just kind of blow off the front patio so that it's clean when people walk up. Um, it may or may not include uh, polishing up the windows a little bit uh, from finger smudges and things like that out front. Uh, walking the first part of the parking lot out there and just picking up the bigger trash that blows through all the time. Uh, it's just making, it's like, you know, you're going to have company over. It's like you want the walk from the curb to your front door to look good. Um, and that's what George does um, on the outside. Um, he is going to Papua New Guinea on Tuesday. And he'll be gone for three Sundays. And so um, if our need that we have is, is both short-term and long-term. Uh, long-term, we would like somebody, George would like to have a little bit bigger team than what he currently has to be able to, uh, so it doesn't all rest on him. So if you're willing to help out with that, that'd be great. Um, he also does uh, straightens up the chairs in the sanctuary. Um, after a service on Sunday, they get... You know, moved around a little bit, and as they vacuum during the week, they might get moved. And he's got a way of going through and lining up all the aisles and making sure everything is set the way that it is supposed to be. And the good news about that is that really can be done anytime, it, um, like on a Saturday to even Sunday morning. So if if somebody wanted to um, come early on Sunday and and just stay for church, you could come early, and you'd be making one trip and you just have to come to church earlier than normal uh, to do all of that. And I'm going to guess it's probably an hour and a half or so before the service would start where it would be you would need to do that. George can, George can tell you a lot more on that. But um, we have – you can either do that or you, if you didn't want to come early on a, on a Sunday and you wanted to come on a, a Saturday, um, you can come anytime you want on a Saturday and help straighten up the front, get the banner hung up on a, on a Saturday – uh, it's really very flexible, and we can get you set up with um, a key and all that stuff that you would need to do. But right now, it, it pretty much rests on George, and he loves doing it. But like I said, he's going to be gone for three weeks because he's going to be in Papua New Guinea, Lord willing. And um, it would be great if we could have some help with that. So um, if you can help serve in that way. And by the way, if you're not serving yet in the church, that's a great way to get started. And um, it's not a heavy demand. Uh, you're not preparing a lesson 
to teach to somebody, you can just come and do it kind of at your own flexible, you know, um, with your own flexible schedule. Make it flexible with your schedule. Um, and so that's a great way to get involved. If you can do it on the short term over the next three Sundays or so, um, let me know. If you'd like to be a part of that uh, longer term, uh, I can put you in contact with George and he can help you out with that. Um, another announcement is uh, Shepherd's Conference is coming up. Shepherd's Conference is uh, like a pastor or leader conference at Grace Community Church in California where John MacArthur's at. We go every year and we take guys um, and we're going to go again. And if you're interested in being a part of that, we'd love to encourage you to consider it. It's, um, it's got a financial uh, <coughs> blow to it. Um, the, the conference itself is $350. Um, you get... I don't know what, $100 plus dollars in books and resources back uh, that you bring home. And plus, what's, the, what's, what's great, there's two parts to it that are great. Obviously, every session with the men that um, uh, are there teaching and preaching uh, are great and you benefit from. Um, but what I like the most is, is not just that, but that when we go, if we take any, you know, I think we've taken as many as 20 guys before or more. And it's just that we spend all that time together, and we go to sessions together, and you eat together, and you're just talking all the time about what you see and what you experience. And, and so if you're interested in that, the, the dates on that are March 9th through the 13th. That's a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and um, 9th through the 13th is actually a Wednesday through a Sunday. But the, the conference itself is Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the 9th, 10th, and the 11th. Um, and there's all kinds of flexibility on when you go out and when you come back. There's guys who drive, um, and there's guys who leave that morning of, the, of Wednesday, the 9th. The conference starts at 10. If you leave here at 5, uh, for them, they're an hour behind us. And so you can actually get there by 10 o'clock in the morning. Makes you a little tired by the end of the day. But you can do that if you don't want to need to miss another day's work or you don't want to pay for a, another night in a hotel. We also order a block of rooms in a hotel, and we share it. You know, you, you buddy up in those rooms, and you can split your costs pretty good uh, and make it more affordable. Um, so if you would like to consider that, please do. And talk to me or let Allie know in the office that you would like to uh, get signed up. What you need to do is you need to register yourself if you can. Um, and so you just go to shepherdsconference.org is the website, shepherdsconference.org. And you just register online. Usually by about this time, they start filling up or closing it down, uh, depending on the year. It just kind of fluctuates. But uh, it would be why, if you're, one of, if you're thinking about it and you think, yeah, I think I've got, I got the resources to do that, I would do it sooner than later. Don't, don't put it off a week or two. Do it now. Um, and if you have any like scholarship help need, don't, don't hesitate to let me know that. Um, we have some ways that we can get creative about that. Um, we can put you on a, a very safe payment plan, if you want, um, at a very low interest rate. <laughs> very low. Um, so, But we would love to help you with that if we can. There's lots of ways to get creative, and uh, we can even possibly help you out scholarship-wise. So uh, don't let finances be the sole determining factor uh, for not knowing if that's an issue, Okay. So uh, consider that again, March 9th through the 13th. Oh, and what I was saying about getting out there, some guys leave on Tuesday. Some people fly out. You can f catch the, the flight from Phoenix to Burbank uh, Wednesday morning, and that's really easy, and it's not, not that expensive to do that. Um, some guys come back on Friday night, 
and drive back. Some guys uh, stay till Saturday morning and drive back. I mean, there's all kinds of. All you need to do is let Allie know. Um, I could. I need to leave on Wednesday and I need to come back Friday night, or I can go out on Tuesday and I'll come back on Saturday, or any possibility in between there. And we pick guys up from the airport. We. Um, help each other out we carpool together and uh, it's a great time of fellowship together uh, so very memorable time together one of the highlights of my year i know all right and i believe that's all i have so scott why don't you come on up and uh, get us going this morning five weeks since we've been here, and I'll just reiterate what Scott just said. It is good to see a room full of guys here on a dark, cold morning, and uh, that's really good. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father, we are thankful to be here, grateful for another day that you have given to us, a day that you have given to us by your kindness and goodness. Lord, you made this day made this day to prove to the world that you are the creator and you are the sustainer of all things. So Lord, we love you and we praise you this morning. We recognize you as the one in whom we are so dependent. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as we consider what it means to be a biblical Christian man. You would help us to understand you well. You would give us affections for you. Lord, I thank you for each and every one of these men who are here this morning. I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we have our notebooks, and on the back we have our disciplines. Um, Briefly, we'll run through these today, just to uh, remind ourselves of what they are. First and foremost, it is incumbent on every believer, every believing man, every believing woman, every believing child to care for their heart, to counsel their heart well. Counseling their heart with God's word, counseling themselves in prayer, meeting with the Lord so that they can bring the fruit of that into their living situation, into their home, whether they live alone, whether they are with roommates, they're with a wife, or they're with kids, or they're with parents. Um, The fruit of your own heart shepherding yields major benefits in your relationships. It just helps the way you think. It helps the way you speak. It provides a sound biblical foundation for the way you act, for the decisions you make, how you get to the decisions, all of those things are enhanced. All of those things please the Lord when you start by shepherding your own heart. When a person does that, they're ready to enter into this church, into some area of ministry, whether it is cleaning up the front area of this church, or whether it's holding babies, or whether it's leading a small group. Uh, any of those activities require that a person be shepherding their heart well, maybe on a, on a path of growing in their heart shepherding. Uh, The church consists of people who have cared for themselves and they take what God has done in their life and they bring about the growth in others as they share what God is doing in their life. We're men who strive to be more and more qualified to serve in this church, even in deacon roles. And so whether he's a man who is, is growing in the area of his dignity or he's a man who is growing in the area of his his speech, and then he has a singular message where it's a man who 
is growing in the things that have a hold on him, the things of God's word. We want to be those kinds of men. It's the hope of the elders, it's the prayer of the elders that the men in this church are guys that pursue the deacon qualifications out of their love for the Lord. Um, their target in all of this as they look at deacon qualifications is, is being a holy man in front of God, being one who follows Jesus wherever he goes. Um, that is what produces a man who's well qualified as a deacon in this church. <clears throat> And here and elsewhere at Grace, we want to be men who are continually sharpening ourselves in our ability to handle the word. And this is a really good place to start with that. And we have much more in front of us for that. We have the trust and we have shepherdology and we have GBI, all of which is intended to equip a man to, to better handle the word to, so that he can be a blessing in the body of Christ. He can be a blessing in his home and he can counsel his own heart better. So we want to keep those things in front of us as often as we can. We want to remind ourselves regularly that um, there is a discipline that's required in that. And we just want to leave that in front of you every day. So I encourage you, continue to shepherd your heart. Continue to shepherd your heart with regularly meeting with God, with His Word, regularly talking to Him in a dedicated time of prayer, in incidental times of prayer. We want that to be the thing that we grow in. What I want to do this morning is to give us some indicators of when it is that our our heart shepherding needs a little bit more help. I want to talk about a few indicators that the way that we're shepherding our heart is not particularly effective. Um, And I've found this to be true in my own life, and I've seen this confirmed in things that I've read. And I want to share with you five indicators from my own life that I need to address some area of my own heart shepherding. And all of them relate to the way in which I interact with sin or I respond to sin that's in my own life. So I want to share with you five things that will be a good indicator that heart shepherding might need a little bit more focus in your life. These have been true in my life, and um, I've seen these affirmed in other writings, and other guys can share the same thing. Um, These are just things to be aware of. These are things to listen to and to look for in your own life. Um, Indicators that heart shepherding um, might need to grow in your life. The first area that is an indicator that my heart shepherding might not be going so well is when I become indifferent to my sin. When a sin has been, a pattern of sin has been present in my life for an extended period of time to such an extent that um, I'm comfortable with it, I'm okay with it, I'm no longer alarmed or concerned or um, startled at the sin in my life. Um, It's been present for so long that I just sort of see myself as that's the way I am. And I have very euphemistic ways of describing that to people. And here's an example from my life that I've seen as I look over my shoulder. Uh, I find myself saying, I'm the kind of guy who just likes to get to the point. And that's a really nice way of saying, um, my heart shepherding is so weak that um, I'm willing to be rude. I'm willing to be unkind. I'm willing to be... Uh, harsh or short with people. I'm willing to be impatient with people. Um, what that really points to is that I'm not using God's word in my, my life very well. I'm not meeting closely with the Lord. 
my Bible is open and my eyes are going over the words, but I'm not communicating with God uh, when I become indifferent to my sin. Um, so what I need to do is I need to examine my life and say, are there patterns of sin in my life that I'm comfortable with? Second area in which is an indicator that I might be not shepherding my heart very well is when I find myself justifying my sin. I see something, I know it's sinful, I know scripture speaks against it, I know my Savior teaches against it, but I find myself explaining away the sin. Yeah, I know that's sinful, but it's there because of, and then I start looking at somebody else, and my eyes are looking at somebody else. They're looking at a circumstance, they're looking at an event. Instead of looking at myself, instead of looking at my Savior, I find myself justifying my sin. And the sin continues in my life because of that. A third indicator that my heart shepherding is not going very well is when I enjoy my sin. I look at my sin and I actually have an affection for it. I have a fondness for it. I have a desire for it. I have an anticipation of it. That is a clear sign that my Bible is is not open and the truth of God's word is not making its way into my heart. That's a challenging thing for me to think about because I find myself um, needing to keep God's word in front of me to to remind myself that that sin is so deceitful. Um, And the only way that I, I know that is when I continually tell myself that from the pages of Scripture. I need the authority of God's word informing me as to the truth of things that are so deceitful. Because my own heart is the kind of heart that gets deceived so easily. So I need to regularly put in my heart truth from God's word. Because I am so inclined to to listen to the lies of the enemy that, that sin is enjoyable and it is right and it is good. Even when I know in my head and my heart that it's not right. I'm so deceivable. That um, So that points to another area of weakness in my, my heart shepherding. A fourth indicator that my heart shepherding needs some help, needs some work, needs some real focus, needs some intentionality, is my motivation for avoiding sin. When I find myself avoiding sin because I will be embarrassed if I'm exposed with that sin, find myself avoiding sin because I don't want to incur the cost of the that comes along with that sin, that's a sure sign that I'm not seeing sin properly. I'm not seeing sin as offensive to a holy God. I'm not seeing um, the reason to run from sin being my love for Christ and the way I'm willing to show my love for Christ by obeying him, following his commands and his teaching, loving him, cherishing those commands meditating on those truths when what keeps me from sin is a a fear of exposure or an embarrassment or something like that that is a sure sign that I am not meeting well with the Lord and I'm not caring for my heart I think in my mind the the last and probably the, the largest indicator that I'm just not shepherding my heart very well is when I am hard to my sin and I'm hard to the correction of the Lord and I'm insensitive to his correction Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Um, And the 
the aim there is that on the other side of that correction, on the other side of that discipline, uh, there is a peaceful fruit of righteousness that, that first comes to yourself and then extends to those who are around you. And it is a really, really good thing. When a believer is insensitive to the correction of the Lord, to the chastening of the Lord, that means that they're not seeing that chastening right. When you just want to get through it and be done with it and, and move on, uh, that means that you've failed to counsel your heart with the truth of God's word and who he is as your father in heaven who wants to teach you, who wants to grow you, he wants to help you um, turn from sin, grow in your sanctification, grow in your holiness. Um, that is a, a sign that you're, you're failing to remember as often as you need to how much your Savior suffered in your place on the cross when he did. So... Those are uh, five indicators that I use to measure my, my heart shepherding. We talk about shepherding our heart every week, and we talk about all of it, and we, we talk about how good it is to do that. And I thought it would be good to give you a yardstick by which you can measure some of your uh, heart shepherding. Those are things that uh, I use in my own life, and uh, they're helpful. They're sobering from time to time, and uh, it's good. So anyway, I hope you're encouraged by that. All right. Make sure you have your uh, worksheet in the back. For today, it should say D2, the whole. Deuteronomy 6. All right. Thank you guys for uh, participating in the uh, snacks, and especially Chris, for you to bring a meat all the time when you do it. It's just like, yeah, it's just really good. Sticks to your bones and helps you make it through. All right. Why don't you take your Bibles? Let's open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're uh, talking about the second discipline. Uh, we want to make sure that we uh, care for our homes well. That was everything we were just talking about in our um, discussion group. Some of you talked about those same kinds of things. Um, this passage um, probably weaves together what God thinks about the need to shepherd your heart well and the connection that that has with your home life uh, better than any other passage in the Bible. Uh, really reveals what God is thinking and what he's after. Uh, so let's read it and then we'll pray. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 9. Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me, Moses says, to teach you, Israel, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. 
so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, look at your word this morning, we pray that you would um, give us understanding and that we would rightly see what we can, um, what we must see about you and your, what your intention is for those who believe in you. Thank you for this example from um, your days with Israel as they were on the plains of Moab, getting ready to enter into the promised land. Yet once again, through Moses, you told them what you were, what you were thinking for them. Lord, we thank you for the timelessness of loving you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. We thank you for the timelessness of um, stepping into our homes and making an impact there, first and foremost, with the gospel and your word. Would you equip us to be men who can do that effectively? Meet each one of us where we are at, Lords. Each one of us is different. We're facing different challenges. We have different skill sets in this. But meet us where we are at and help us to take one good step forward today. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's just take a little bit of time here and understand first just what's going on in Deuteronomy. Here's a summary of the book. Uh, from Thompson, he said, God appear, uh, appears in a strong covenantal setting. That's what you need to think of when you read Deuteronomy, is that God is in covenant with Israel. He is the great king. He's the Lord of the covenant. The Mosaic covenant portrays God as the great king who entered into a treaty or a covenant with Israel so that he became their God and they his people. By the time you read Deuteronomy, Israel has been uh, delivered from Egypt. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience the disobedience of that first generation and now that first generation has pretty much died off and now the sons and the daughters that have been growing up the last 40 years and wandering in the in the wilderness are now on the plains of Moab which means that they're on the the edge of getting ready to go into the promised land and Moses is instructing them one more time he's giving them the law one more time that's what Deuteronomy means it means the second giving of the law. And so that's what he's doing. He's reminding them again, look, this is what God did with us at Mount Sinai. These are the laws that he has given to us. This is what he expects of us. I provided for you there an outline of the book, just so that you can kind of get a feel for what the book is about it. Uh, you see the covenant mediator, who is Moses, in the first five verses of chapter 1. And then you get a little section of covenant history. That's about how they got to where they are uh, in the wilderness. 
And then the main section is from chapter 5 through chapter 26, and that just talks about covenant life. That's where you're going to see all of the, uh, so many of the, the laws again being given and, and talked about again by Moses for the people. In chapter 27 to 30, that's where you have the covenant sanctions, where they really ratify the covenant. Again, the, you see the blessings and the curses that are given. Uh, covenant oath is made. And then the last part of Deuteronomy is on the covenant continuity. Uh, how, how's the nation going to continue in its covenant with God without Moses as they head into the promised land? We'll pick things up in verse 4 of chapter 6 today, uh, where uh, we're going to really see what the center, who the center of the Israelites' life is. Verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, or Yahweh, is our God. Yahweh is one. That verse introduces us to the God of Israel, Yahweh. And in particular, that he is their very life. The closer that Israel will draw near to Yahweh, the warmer their affections will be for him, their love for him will be fervent, their obedience to him will be deeper, the more lively their service of Yahweh will be as a nation. Israel needs to stay close to this God who is the very center of their life. And this is really in verses 4 through 9, a call um, to not drift from God. They'll become cold toward him if they do, just like you and I become cold in our hearts toward God when we neglect him. Um, Verse 4 is is called the Shema. Uh, That's the Hebrew word for hear. You see that in verse 4, hear, O Israel. It's an imperative, it's a command. The idea with when when, when a Hebrew said, hear me, A Hebrew father wasn't telling his son, I want to make sure that the words went into your head. He wanted that. But to hear in the Hebrew mind was was tantamount to obey. And so when God says, hear, O Israel, when Moses says to Israel to hear, he's calling them to obedience. He's calling them to obedience. There's a quote there from Merrill that I have for you. To hear in Hebrew lexicography is tantamount to obey, especially in a covenant context like this. That is, to hear God without putting into effect the command is really to not hear him at all in the Hebrew's mind. And this hearing with the intent to obey is in light of everything that God has done. You can't just drop into Deuteronomy 6 and forget what happened in the books prior to this. First of all, uh, because they, they were a people who were in the Abrahamic covenant, that means that they were a people who understood that, that uh, righteousness was declared over them on the basis of faith alone. You have to remember that. Um, That wasn't true for every single one of the Jews in the nation, but as a people, they were the ones who stood out out of all the other nations that we're not working for our righteousness. We believe and God credits, credits it to us as righteousness, like our father Abraham. That's the way it was supposed to be. You have to remember that when he calls them to obey. And because, you have to remember this in light of the fact that Yahweh redeemed them from Egypt with a strong hand, a strong arm. And you have to remember that he made a covenant with them in the wilderness. So when you hear this or read this, hear me with the intent to obey. You have to remember and not forget that for Israel, there was a foundation of grace underneath them that God put there. Believe, and it will be credited to you as righteousness. So this is not a call to hear and obey so that you will 
be noticed by me. God never has worked that way. And he wasn't working that way then. Because of everything else that was underneath them, through Abraham, through his deliverance of them, he'd only been gracious towards them and called them in grace. And again, that doesn't mean that every single Jew believed the way that they were supposed to. But if anybody understood that, it was to be this nation, this people. So this is really a call to those who were supposed to be believers in Yahweh already. They were to listen closely for the purpose of their obedience to him. And so Israel needed to be determined that they were going to be aligned with Yahweh in all of his commandments, all of his ways, and that they were going to know what he has said in order to conform their life to him accordingly. And you know what, this principle is, is true for us. What, the way that God was dealing with Israel is the way that Jesus deals with us, even in the New Testament. In fact, I want to show you a, a New Testament equivalent to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Go to uh, James 1, verse 22. James 1, verse 22. This will sound very familiar uh, to what we just read. Here's Deuteronomy 6, 4. Here... Hear me with the intent to obey, Israel. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Listen to the same idea of hearing with the intent to obey. James chapter 1, verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You see, God has never been uh, interested in a hearing that does not flow into doing. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. The Jews would have to look at Mosaic law. We look at the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law that is in Christ for us as the church. So you see there's... We could talk about from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's discontinuity and there's continuity. There are some things that have changed radically from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, you have Mosaic law from the Old Testament for the believers of Israel. You have in the New Testament Christ's law for the church. There's something that's discontinuous. You have a people in the Old Testament called Israel. You have a people in the New Testament called the church. There's something that's different, discontinuous. But there are some things that never change, that are always continuous, that continue on. And what is that? It's primarily God in how he works with his people. He has always been a God of grace. He has never worked on the basis of works righteousness. Israel did that. They abused it horribly. They don't even abuse it. They just they abused his law. They took it up as something that God gave, thinking that God gave it to them that they might earn his favor, demonstrate their own righteousness establish their own righteousness in that law. God never gave it for that. He wanted them to hear him and obey him because he called them by grace to believe. And he delivered them when they didn't deserve to be delivered as a nation. And they should follow suit in obedience. So verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6 is probably the most potent and succinct summary of who God is up to this point. Yahweh is our God Yahweh is one. And there's a couple of different translation possibilities. The first would be what you see if you've got the NAS or the ESV. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. 
And that stresses the uniqueness and the exclusivity of Yahweh as Israel's God. Another way to say that would be Yahweh, our God, is the one and only God. That's what's being intended here. Uh, the, I think the other translations, that some, some of them say the Lord, our God, is one Lord. And what they're trying to stress with that translation is really that God is a unity. He's not a schizophrenic God. He's not two gods. He's, he's one God. Um, the Lord is indeed a united being, but he is also an utterly distinct and unique one. There is no other God. Macintosh, the quote there I have for you, says all the grammatical possibilities point in the same direction, and it's to this, the uniqueness and the supremacy of Yahweh, God of Israel. The unity of God is stressed. God's distance from the invented deities of the nations is stressed. Israel's strength lying not only in the worship of Yahweh, but in the exclusive worship of him. So why is all this important to say about Yahweh? Why is Moses doing this? It's because he cannot be worshipped along with other gods. And that's the point that he's going to be making all throughout Deuteronomy. If we just drop in and we forget what Israel was like. Um, we forget what they went through. But Moses hadn't forgotten because he's had to wander with them for 40 years because of their disobedience. And so he is stressing for them again, he cannot be worshipped. Yahweh cannot be worshipped along with the other gods that have plagued us. Think about what's been behind um, Israel. 40 years in the wilderness, if you were to turn around with them and look back on their life, what would you see? Um, the place that Yahweh's people had been for the last 400 years prior was a nation that was loaded with gods. <coughs> loaded with gods. Um, what I want you to do is turn to Ezekiel. That's right, I said Ezekiel. Uh, if you need to use your table. See, in those of you with electronic devices, you will never learn where to turn in your Bible. You'll just go back and <laughs> tap. And for all you know, your app publisher person could today just delete Ezekiel and you would never know. <laughs> it's a sad thing. Ezekiel chapter 20. I'll let the Lord convict you of that. <laughs> so Bibles in the bookstore, right? Yeah, that's right. Ezekiel 20. What I want you to see by looking at Ezekiel 20, it's very interesting. Um, you find out here in Ezekiel, what God found when he went into Egypt to deliver Egypt. And you say, well, I've, I've read Exodus. I know what happened. Yeah, but you know what? God decided that he wasn't going to give all of his revelation of what he found in Exodus. He leaves a bunch of it right here for you. Watch this. This is shocking. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. On that day I said to them, watch this. So he goes into Egypt. He's going to rescue Israel out. And this is what he says to them. Cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I'm Yahweh your God. What did he find Israel doing when he went into Egypt to get them? Were they faithful to him? They had detestable things in front of their eyes. They had idols. 
How did they respond to that when God said that to them? Verse 8, but they rebelled against me, and they were not willing to listen to me, and they did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Did you know that God was going to destroy them just right then and there? But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived and whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and I brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and I informed them of my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. Also, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. See, that's what he was doing. He was sanctifying them with his law. But the house of Israel rebelled against me even in the wilderness, not just in Egypt. They did not walk in my statutes. They rejected my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. In my Sabbath, they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose sight I had brought them out. Also, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, because they rejected my ordinances. And as for my statutes, they did not walk in them. For they even profaned my Sabbaths for their heart continually, even in the wilderness, what? Went after their idols. Yet my eyes spared them rather than destroying them, and I did not cause their annihilation in the wilderness. Why on earth would Moses say to Israel, our God is the unique one? Why would he say that? Because they are idolaters. By the way, which man, which people would God go into the world and say, I'm going to grab that people and I'm going to work through them to reach all of the other nations? Which group would he go and find that were not idolaters? The only choice is what? I got to pick idolaters. So I'm going to pick this one. And his name is Abram. And that's what came forth from Abraham as a nation who constantly had to fight against idolatry. You can go back to, um, and actually go to Joshua 24. If you remember um, in our last uh, lesson together, Joshua is the next book right after Deuteronomy, right? Joshua 24, the last <coughs> chapter of Joshua. We, we spent time, extensive time on um, talking about why Joshua gathered the people at Shechem. Remember that if you were there? Uh, Israel is in the, the, the promised land in Joshua 24. Uh, it's at the end of Joshua's life, and he is giving them one more time a charge. And he says, uh, look at um, Joshua 24, verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges, their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river. He's talking about Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor. And what did they do when they were on the other side of the river? They served other gods. Again, what kind of people could he pick except this? I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and I led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Drop down to verse 14. Now, therefore, that we are in this land, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. So what is he telling them? Even once they're in the land, 
to that day when they are in the land, they are still worshiping the idols that Abraham's father had on the other side of the river. They've never walked away from that, that idolatry. And not only that, they still have the idols of Egypt with them. And he's saying, look, it's time to be sincere, one-hearted towards Yahweh. If it is disagreeable, verse 15, in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served, which, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in the land, uh, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 23. Therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst, and incline your hearts to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Go back to Deuteronomy. So if you stood behind them, or stood, stood where they are and turned around and looked behind them, all you would see is just a, a smattered disaster of idolatry. And if you were to turn around with them in the plains of Moab with Moses and look forward and we saw what we, what's coming in Joshua, what would you see? Continued idolatry. And standing right where you're at is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and God says to Israel, hear me with the intent to obey I'm the only one. I'm the only one. There is no other God. He's calling them back to themselves. Hear this with the intent to obey. Yahweh is the only God for Israel. And if Israel will still stay near to her God, then there's hope for her as a nation, as a people. Fullness of life will be found with him in their covenant with him. So that's just setting the stage for what's going on in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, And what is the very first thing on the mind of Yahweh that he wants to say to them as he calls them to himself? What's the very first thing on his mind? Look back at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. What's the first thing on his mind? Love. Love. And that takes us to number one, the discipline of the heart for the Old Testament believer. Here's the discipline of shepherding the heart for the Old Testament believer in Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 and 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Israel was to be marked by a love that consumed their whole inner man, their whole inner being. The gods of Egypt, the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Hittites never communicated to any of their devotees this request or this command. In fact, no ruler today would ever think to demand of its followers that they love him. Matthew Henry says in his commentary, did ever any prince make a law that his subjects should love him? Can you imagine our president saying, love me? Yet such is the condescension of the divine grace that this is made the first and great commandment of God's law, that we love him and that we perform all other parts of our duty to him from a principle of love. So what is meant when when Moses says here, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, or with all your strength? What is God intending to do? Here's what God is not doing. He's not sending the Israelite on a splicing analysis of man 
Israel, uh, go look over there for wherever your heart is. And then once you find where your heart is over there, love God with all of that. And then I want you to run over here to a different place from your heart and find your soul. And when you find your soul, then love God with all of that too. And then I want you to find your strength, wherever that is. And go find that. He's not sending them on a splicing analysis of themselves. He's actually doing just the very opposite. He's thinking of as many different ways as he can to sum them all up. Your heart, your inner man, your soul, your inner life that continues on without your body, your, your fervency and your strength as a, as a living being. Whatever it is you want to call yourself, love me with all of it. He's trying to gather man up into one piece. So God is not trying to divide us up when he says love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's actually doing the opposite. He's gathering us up into one being. He's describing us in as many different terms to make one point. Because if you get the inner man, you get what? You get all of them. You get all of them. Your heart is your command central of who you are. It's where your thoughts are born, where your words are attitudes, deeds, your desires, your emotions are all birthed there. They're nurtured there. They are matured there. And if you get the soul of, or the inner life of the man, you get all of his life. Same with strength. I have a quote there from Macintosh on strength. What is it? What's meant by the strength of man? Strength is not so much a person's physical power as it is his intensity. God wants earnestness in a person's love. He desires not merely that we possess a faith or a love, but that our faith or our love should possess us. So let me ask you this question. When you think of the old covenant and when you think of Mosaic law, Do you think first about love? Is that the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Mosaic Law? Love. You know what? It's what is the first thing on God's mind when he thinks about his law for Israel. So he thought of love. Love. Yahweh's people, Israel, were not guilty before him first and foremost because they didn't worship on the Sabbath the way that they were supposed to. They weren't guilty first and foremost because they broke dietary laws or social laws or ceremonial sacrificial laws or even because they broke the Ten Commandments. That's not why they were primarily guilty. They were guilty before Yahweh first and foremost because they did not love him with an all-consuming love. And because they did not love Yahweh, they therefore were unconcerned to obey dietary laws, sacrificial laws and social laws and even the Ten Commandments. You see, in God's mind, love is always the issue for us. The cure for disobedience in your life, in my life, is love for God. Let me give you an illustration that um, I think is helpful in this. The closest covenant idea probably in our minds uh, today is probably the marriage covenant. I mean, if you think of a wedding ceremony, the... It, it, it has the marriage covenant in it. You've got two people and they're making vows to one another, right? And these, these are vows that two parties are pledging to keep and to make, to keep them and to obey them. Will you? Will you? Will you? And the person says, I will. I will. I will. Sounds like a bunch of rules and regulations and 
demands on them. Sounds very law-like. Why on a wedding day, though, does no bride object to those laws? Because she loves him and will do anything for the love. And same thing with a man to a woman. Nobody sits there and thinks, you know what, you know, I didn't think about this before, hon, but this is really just wall-like, and I don't know. You won't even get a walk down an aisle if you think that way. Part of the grace, baby. That's right. It's all grace, honey. What a misunderstanding of grace. This command from Yahweh to love him, it actually re- reflects, it reveals his desire for his people's attitude towards him. He's telling us how we should be in attitude and behavior towards him. Love me. Love me. A quote from Macintosh. Jesus would later insist, John fourteen twenty one. are you familiar with that? Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So how is our love for Jesus shown and demonstrated? That we have his commandments and we what? Keep them. So Jesus would later insist in John 14, 21, that love. His disciples could hardly have missed the point of the statement in which Jesus insisted on the same devotion that Israel had been commanded to give Yahweh. Can you imagine that? A rabbi from Nazareth wandering around in Galilee is calling Jews to love him by keeping his commandments. They should have picked up stones and thrown them at him unless he's God. Turn to Matthew 22. Let's think about this. Uh, let's let the New Testament help inform us a little bit on this as well. Matthew 22, verse 36. You know this. Teacher comes up to him and says, Teacher, uh, or a, a lawyer comes up to him and, and says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. 1 Corinthians 16 22, Paul says, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is accursed. Ephesians 6.24, as that Paul's letter comes to an end, he says, Those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. We have a, an incorruptible love. And then let's turn to John 21. I, I love this. This is one of my favorite passages. Watching Jesus restore Peter. I can identify with Peter so uh, easily because of my quickness to declare my loyalty and then realize... I haven't been loyal at all. John 21, verse 15. You remember what's going on? Jesus is raised from the dead. Peter is completely discouraged. He is convinced that he should not at all be anywhere near doing what he used to do. And so he says, I'm going to go fishing. In other words, that's Peter saying, I'm going back to what I was before Jesus stepped into my life. There's no way, there's no hope for me. There's no way forward. And you remember the story, they're out fishing they, all night, they caught nothing, and then there's some figure standing on the beach, and I mean, can you just picture this? You, you're a, it's not like all night, if you're on a lake or on a sea of Galilee, and you're, you're fishing, and you're throwing nets, it's not like you're only throwing them out one side of the boat. 
And he says, hey, throw it over the other side. And they do, and all of a sudden, the creator has just been holding a bunch of fish right there. And then they throw the net, and so many fish swim into the net that it begins to tear. And Peter is like, I know who that is on the beach. And he comes. John 21, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, the one who said, I'll never forsake you. I won't deny you. He said to him, Simon, will you stop being so foolish? That's not what he said. Simon, will you promise and resolve to do better from here on out? That's not what he said. Simon, will you give some accountability? That's not what he said. What did he say? Simon, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, then tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And that had to sting a little bit that he didn't call him Peter, the name that he had named him. Because Peter hadn't been what he, Jesus wanted to make him into. A little bit of a rebuke there. Mm-hmm. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, verse 17. He said it a third time. Peter was grieved. Probably didn't connect the dots. This is the third time and I denied him three times. Do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Tend my sheep. You see, what is the foundation of our relationship with Jesus from our vantage point once we are in by grace? The foundation for us is is love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's love for him. And Peter needed to remember that, and so do men like us, especially when we resolve to do big things for God and be loyal, and, and then we fall flat on our faces. So, again, what has never changed is God's expectation that his believers love him whether it's Israel or us. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is that first discipline. Yahweh's people, Israel, whose life is to be bound up in him, they discover that he has provided for them a means by which their all-consuming love for him could be kept up. How do they keep that love for him maintained and fueled and directed and guided and protected, (coughs) nurtured. Well, verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Love me, and I've got some words that need to be on your heart. So love for God must move towards God's word in order to bring it out of the heart, bring it into the heart and bring it out of the heart. Um. Some New Testament passages to think about in regards to this. You can write down Luke 8, verses 9 to 15. That's Jesus teaching on uh, the parable of of the soils. Um, The seed is the word, and the word goes into the heart. So Jesus' intent is that his word, when it is preached, when it is proclaimed, goes into the heart of the individual. God desires his word to be in a full contact sport with your inner man. Okay? Okay. Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. You remember the disciples as they were walking on the way to Emmaus with the resurrected Jesus. They didn't recognize him. Later they realized when they figured out who it was, they said, well, we're not, weren't our hearts burning within as he was speaking the word to us? 
in Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. Um, let me just read that one for you. Hebrews 4, verse 12, says this. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. and is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God intends his word to be in your heart. Doing its work. Look, it's not going to be comfortable always when you read your Bible, guys. Your, your thoughts and your intentions are going to get judged. You're going to feel convicted. You're going to feel uh, pierced. But that's what we need. That's what we need. Verse 13, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We've got to face him one day. He's being so gracious to you now that he gives you his word that helps you to see a little bit of what he sees in your heart. Um, a quote there from Matthew Henry. God's words must be laid up on our hearts that our hearts may be daily conversant with them and employed by them and thereby the whole soul may be brought to abide and act under the influence and the impression of those words. This immediately follows upon the law of loving God with all your heart. For those that do so will lay up his word in their hearts both as an evidence and effect of that love and as a means to preserve and increase that love. He that loves God loves his Bible. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And this is what Discipline 1 is all about. A spiritual leader in the church is someone who constantly brings his heart to the word of God so that God might graciously reveal himself through those words. And the spiritual leader's love for God then gets fanned into a flame there. And his love for God turns the spiritual leader back again and again to the word so that his love for God might be guided into proper expressions of obedience to him. And this goes on all day long. It doesn't, doesn't just happen in your quiet time in the morning. Every Christian is called to be this way, right? But especially the leader in the home, the leader in the church, needs to be a well-disciplined man in this and to be an example for the rest. Be this, pray that God would make you into this well-disciplined man in your home. And pray that God would raise up men in the church who would be um, examples for the rest of the body for this. Listen, guys, if, if the men of Grace Bible Church should be known for anything, it should be what? The men of that church, they love Jesus. Not that they're sharp theologically. Not that they put everything, all got all their ducks in a row. None of that. That's important. I'm not saying that's not important. But we need to be known as men who love Jesus. You get that right, Everything else gets taken care of. You miss that. And Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus become terrifying. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Revelation 2.4. That's the discipline of the heart. Let's talk about number two. The discipline of the home. Deuteronomy 6 verses 7 to 9. In Israel... Those words had to advance beyond the heart. I love watching this. Just watch what God does. He's, he says, love me from the heart. I've got some words that need to go on your heart. And then he could have put a period and the whole chapter could have come to an end. But it doesn't. 
God's telling us what he thinks beyond that. What does he say? You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand, as frontals on your forehead. Uh, Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Teach them diligently. The idea here, I've got a couple quotes for you. There's, we're not really sure exactly what that what that adjective or that adverb diligently means. Teach them diligently. It, it was the idea of frequently repeating these things to them. Try all ways of instilling them into their minds and make them pierce into their hearts as in sharpening a knife as it is turned first on this side and then on the other. It's the uh, it's the idea of the movement, of the, that the knife or the tool comes in repeated, diligent contact with the stone. The other way that this word was used, the idea is in the second quote there, the image is that of an engraver of a monument who takes a hammer and a chisel in the hand and with painstaking care etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. You can imagine if you're trying to put words into, into granite, you would, you would have to have that tool touching that constantly. And then once it was there, after all that diligence, it would be there to stay. And that's the idea of what a father in Israel was supposed to do with their children, is to teach it to them diligently. So whether it's sharpening a knife or whether it's engraving, the idea is that the tool is taken to the stone repeatedly, diligently, over and over. Be that way with the words of God with your kids. Bring those words into contact with your children repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. So Yahweh's intent for Israel is that they were to love him. He was to be the center of their life. They were to love him through their words, through their deeds, from the inside out. They would pour forth their heated love from their heart for him. And then those precious words had to be advanced into the household. Can you imagine what the nation would have been like had they done this? And where on, uh, on earth would you have gone to see anything like this in the promised land? That was God's intent. And you are to talk of them, verse uh, 7, talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. So clearly he doesn't mean just do a quiet time in the morning with your kids. Um, Israel was upon any occasion within the home or without the home. They were to impress the word of God on their children, those who were in their home. And look, there's occasions of activity and inactivity. When you sit, when you walk. So when you're teaching your son how to mow the lawn, we might think when you're sitting and not doing much, these things need to be coming out of your mouth. When you lie down and when you rise up, that's at the end of the day and at the beginning of the day. The bookends on the day were for Israel to be marked by discussion or conversation around the word. The Israelite was to go even further still. Look at verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. Moses is commanding that the commandments were to actually be worn on the person so they had tassels on the ends of their garments that would remind them of the different laws. And so whatever it was that they were doing with their hands, there's constantly these tassels that were getting in the way. Why? A quote here from McIntosh and from Spurgeon. The, the commandments were to be sovereign over individual Israelites. They were to serve as constraints or guides on their hands and as mental checks upon their thinking. The purpose of using such symbolism was to connect God's law with the everyday routine matters of life. Nothing was to be considered outside the scope 
of his authority. Whatever they put their hands to, the laws were touching their hands. So whatever they put their hands to, God had something to say about that. So clearly what God was after with Israel was that, look, there's never a time when you stop thinking about the word of God and what you're doing in me. Spurgeon, by putting those frontals on their heads, they would wear those little little leather box that had uh, commandments or the words of the Ten Commandments on there. And so the, the idea was that it was between their eyes and what they were looking at. Thou shalt see by them. Thou shalt see with them. Thou shalt see through them. That's a good way to think of the word of God. See the world by the word of God. See your world with the word of God. See your world through the word of God. And then even one step beyond that, verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house. So you can imagine an Israelite as he would go out of his door of his house as he was leaving. Oh, I'm headed into my day. There's the word of God. And then it was supposed to be on the, the, the posts or by the gates. So if he left his property and was going out into the gates, of, through his gates into his community or the fields or wherever, oh yeah, the word of God as I head out into my day. And as he came back from the end of his day, first thing he would see coming through a gate uh, is the word of God. First thing he would see before he got into the home is the word of God. We talked about in our um, discussion group, one of the things you can do um, as you're finishing out your day, you're coming home from work, is use your commute time better. Turn the radio off. And think, oh my goodness, I have to go home. And Lord, I wish I was done with having to exert myself mentally right now. I'm really tired, but there, there are some people in the house who need to be cared for. Um, okay, so what do I need to be thinking about, God? What, where do you want me to be? I need to be, I have no idea what I'm stepping into. I have no idea what my wife's been through all day. What, what, what am I, what, how do I need to be ready? Make me ready, God. Help me to be selfless, not selfish. Um, don't let me go home expecting to be served, but let me go home and serve and to give my life like Jesus gave his life a ransom for many. Use your life that way. Use your commute time that way. Prepare yourself for when you're headed home so that you are in a better condition spiritually to step into the home. Uh, you'll be a blessing to your wife. I can remember when, when our kids were young, I can remember some days where Kim would meet me at the door and she would have one of them in her arms and she would say, here. <laughs> and this is, this is what I have been through today. Yeah. And I was like, okay, just going to get this down, write this down. I'm holding a little one. And, and she's like, she does not get to start over with you. She picks up right where we left off with you. So that we were, we took the time always to try to be on the same page. Not always, we, we tried to do it. But we tried to be on the same page, thinking the same way together, so that when I got home, I wasn't Mr. Grace. <laughs> <laughs> and the children love me. <laughs> and your wife will look at you, and then she will cut you down at the knees later. <laughs> that is not helpful. We come home and, and, and labor together. Think, what am I doing? I, I'm stepping in here. I have no idea what this precious woman has been doing uh, and what she's been through. Um, I, need to, I need to be a servant when I come home. Um, Put the, put the word of God on an index card and tape it to your dash and look at it and think on it and meditate on it all the way home. 
Um, ask God for help so that you're ready to step into your home. One last quote there from Merrill. The form of the commandment is in any case most significant. After ordering that the covenant commandments be worn on the person of the faithful Israelite, Moses expanded the sphere of the covenant claim to the house and then to the village. In this manner, the person and his entire family and community become identified as the people of the Lord, whose word was everywhere. And what a nation that was supposed to be. So I, I encourage you, this is a, we've been nestling down here in an Old Testament passage concerning how God was interacting with Israel. I, I encourage you to take our lesson from December of 5, I think it was, where we kind of did the biblical survey from the Old Testament through to the New Testament. And just re- refresh your memory of all of the New Testament specifics about, you know, how are we to, how does God intend his word to be in our hearts, but also in our homes? What are the things that we need to be thinking about in our homes as well. Let the New Testament fully inform your thinking about your household. And and if, if you get anything from Deuteronomy 6, I, I hope it's more about what you see about what God is like in this sense. That God shows us how inseparable the discipline of shepherding the heart with the word of God and shepherding your household, they are inseparable in his mind. There's no intention anywhere from the Old Testament to the New Testament of a man who would just love to pursue the Lord through his word but then never make any impact on his home. That does not exist in God's mind nor in his heart. Okay? And if in your mind you discover that indeed a gap does exist between you doing that, between doing both, you'll find that there is a gap. That the, the goal of your life is to decrease that gap the rest of your life. Right? So, come up with a plan for how you're going to continue your pursuit of love for Christ and his word and what's your plan going to be for how you're going to care for those in your home. That's why we ask you to go home and ask your wife or ask a roommate or ask your children if they're old enough. Say, how's it going? How am I doing? Because your perception of reality is is not necessarily um, the whole perception of reality. And your wife or your kids will have something to say that you weren't even aware of or they, but, but that you need to really think about And don't be satisfied until your life reflects that inseparable connection between discipline one and discipline two. Okay? So, if if you get this down, if you you labor, if you become a man who's just convinced, the rest of my life, this is what I'm going to be about. This is it. I'm going to take care of my soul with the word of God, and I'm going to impact my house. If you get that, God will take care of everything else in your life. He will take care of everything else in your life. If you neglect that, it's going to be a tough life. It's not going to be an easy life with this, but it's going to be an especially tough life. Um, So focus on just the simple things. Trust your life to God. Ask him to bless your pursuit of him. Okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, that is indeed our prayer, even right now, is that you would bless our feeble efforts to pursue you through your word. Draw out of us greater love for you that would be evidenced by our obedience to Jesus and his commandments. Thank you for the amazing, vivid description of how you wanted the believers in Israel to live before you. As believers in you, 
Um, on this side of the cross, Lord, we see your grace and your redeeming work so much more clearly than they did. And, and Lord, we need your help. So help us to pursue you. Um, help us to be diligent in our love and our obedience to you, not because we're trying to earn your favor. That has already been done by your son. We are declared righteous on the basis of faith alone. Father, thank you for being gracious to us. But now, from love for you, help us to conform our lives to your word. And Lord, inseparably from that, help us to step into our households and take charge, take command as a servant, as one who would um, want to bring other people into contact with you and your word. Take these feeble efforts of ours and bless them beyond what we could ask or think. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, thank you very much. We got, uh, we'll be up again in two weeks from today. Is that the 23rd? Saturday the 23rd. We'll see you back then.